Hello and welcome to Over the Edge. This episode features an interview between Matt Trafiro and Stephen Goldberg, CEO at HarperDB. Stephen is an established thought leader in the IoT space, with previous professional experience as a CTO and CEO of startups, holding several larger roles at organizations like Red Hat and leading digital transformation projects at a number of Fortune 500 companies across many verticals. He's been published and quoted in many technology publications, as well as being a speaker at IoT World, SAP Sapphire, and Salesforce.com's Dreamforce. Stephen holds two patents and received his Bachelor of Arts from Trinity College Hartford in 2006. In this episode, Stephen talks about being a self-taught programmer that initially wanted to work in anything but technology. He explains the process of co-founding HarperDB to deal with the rigidity and complexity of databases and how the company makes it easier to globally distribute data faster. Stephen also discusses how bureaucracy in many ways is the biggest challenge to innovation and the adoption of new technologies. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by Dell Technologies to unlock the potential of your infrastructure with edge solutions. From hardware and software to data and operations across your entire multi-cloud environment, we're here to help you simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting Dell.com for more information or click on the link in the show notes. And now, please enjoy this interview between Matt Trafiro and Steven Goldberg, CEO at HarperDB. Hey, Steven, how are you doing today? I'm doing quite well. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, that's awesome. So one of the things I like to ask all my guests, because I get a different answer from just about everybody, is how did you actually get into technology? Mine was not a, a well-thought-out plan. My uncle started a software company in the early 90s. It was a ISP billing software company when the internet was sort of first emerging for consumers. And my father thought it'd be a good idea if I flew out and spent this, some time over the summer with him and kind of went from there and just always like enjoyed programming and playing with computers and various sort of side jobs. And I didn't want to do this. I wanted to do anything but technology, but, and I studied really? something else in college. Yeah. I didn't want to be a geek. What did you study in college? I actually studied theology and I focused on like mysticism in Islam and Christianity and Judaism. I myself am not religious, but I just found sort of the... Um, that is so cool. I, st I studied philosophy, linguistics, and cognitive science in college. So I totally, I totally get it. I totally yeah. get it. But you did mention programming. So did, are you self-taught? Totally, yes. And so is Kyle, my CTO. You know, we have a few folks with CS degrees, but the vast majority of HarperDB in my company are self-taught programmers. So to help me understand, was the work with your father, that was before the theology study, right? Yeah, so when I was, I'm 39, so yeah, I was like 13 years old. It was like during the very early 90s, like when, you know, your dial-up and before even AOL, I was programming on a Unix-based operating system and learning kind of HTML. And while self-taught, I was very lucky because there were, you know, 20 or 30 people who helped, you know, me learn in that room and who were some of the people who helped create the internet. So I had a huge advantage. So not sort of self-taught in the driven way, but I didn't have any formal training. Learning through osmosis. Yes, <laughs> And <exactly>. deadlines. <laughs> deadlines. Yeah. So you came out of school with 
a deep understanding of mysticism and religious studies. You said specifically you want to do anything but technology. What did you end up doing? I graduated college in 2006, and then I went to Europe and I bummed around for a while. Then when I came back, I tried to get a job, but the market was collapsing. I applied for hundreds and hundreds of jobs in finance and project management, in real estate, in a million different things. And I couldn't really get hired anywhere. And so a family friend worked at a software company called iMaginations, which did patient education software. They hired me and I went and I worked there as an intern and quickly that transitioned into me working at Red Hat. And from there, then kind of many other things. But it was really more just a function of I knew how to program, I was technical, and it was really the only valuable skill that I had that was good enough to get me through kind of the market conditions at that time. And how did all this lead up to HarperDB, which is your current company right now? After I left Red Hat, I moved here to Denver to work at a consulting company, and I was solving challenges around large-scale integration, large-scale enterprise architecture challenges. And then I started my own consulting company, and I hired Kyle Bernhardy, who's my co-founder at HarperDB. He was my first customer, actually, at my previous consulting company. And he and I, we wanted to build a product, but we tried to run a consulting company at the same time. And anyone who's ever done that, it's a really bad idea unless you're extremely disciplined which we were not. And so we just ended up being a consulting company, but we wanted to build this sort of middleware integration platform because we felt like it was kind of stupid that we were getting paid a lot of money to go to the same, you know, company after company and do the same thing over and over again. That's where Heroku came from. Exactly. We love Heroku and we think we have taken a lot from Heroku and we think of Heroku as a sort of a similar thing to what HarperDB is today. And we we're big fans of it at the time. And we just were frustrated by that, but we couldn't figure out. We were stupid. We were young. We didn't know how to run a company, and we were really good at solving technical problems. But our customer, a software company in the Bay Area, they asked us to join them, and they sort of acquired us, and we were very happy to not be consulting anymore and not running a consulting company because we were bad at it. Uh, <laughs> and so we went and joined them. They were a large-scale sports and analytics company focused on big data in social media for, you know, football and live television. And we just had this extremely complex back-end technology to power all of it. We ended up actually buying a Cray supercomputer to power it because our AWS bill was so high. We realized it'd be cheaper to buy a Cray supercomputer. <laughs> and we did that. And we were just very frustrated by how complex that backend was and how much of our resources was being used to maintain it. And sort of some of the similar problems we'd run into as consultants around integration. And at the time, we had thought that was a middleware problem. But ultimately, we realized the rigidity and complexity of databases made development really hard. Developers just want to code. They don't want to figure out what their database schema should look like, what should be indexed, where things should be deployed. And so... We ultimately left that company to build HarperDB because we felt like while the iPhone, for example, is an extremely complex device technologically internally, it exposes a very simple interface to the world that even a child can use. And so our thought process was a database should be the same for a developer. It should be a thing that a developer can just sit down and code. And ultimately, 
We have built far more than a database in the end, but that was kind of the premise of what we wanted. We wanted something that would scale with you as your application grew, that made your life easy. And we came up with an idea over a year before starting the company, but we thought that someone else would solve the problem before us, um, that someone much smarter who went to Stanford and had a PhD in data and computer science but that didn't happen, and so here we are. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the problems that you solve. The first thing that came into my mind, and it's going to sound snarky, but I'm smiling when I'm saying this, which is like, the last thing the world needs is another database, right? And what I mean by that is there are a lot of databases, and so if you're going to sell and compete in that market, you have to be doing something different for a specific set of use cases. Can you tell us what HarperDB does that's truly unique and which class of developer says, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you built this? Many, many people said those exact words that you said in the when we first started the company, and it was a little disheartening, to be honest. Now, I think it's funny, and I kind of agree with you. Well, there's plenty of d database companies that have been successful, right? So it's not like it, or it began and ended with Oracle, right? I mean, Cockroach is the most recent example. A absolutely, yeah. Or Snowflake or whatever one of these. Cockroach, Snowflake, you know, MongoDB. Influx, there's many, many. Yeah, all in, of them. In, in, yeah. So really, we did start the product because while all those products exist, you know, Mongo went after this idea of, hey, let's just make developers' lives easier. But it's not that easy. And it doesn't really support a lot of use cases like SQL and analytics. And you mentioned Heroku. You also can't really easily just write your whole application in, in MongoDB. So that is why we started the company. And developers do love HarperDB for that reason. There's 100,000 of them currently using it, you know, to build their applications. But that's not how we make money, to be honest. Like, the way we make money is a very specific problem that we do solve. And it was totally accidental. And we didn't, like, plan to solve this problem. We built HarperDB in Node.js, which is a web application framework, which means that it's not, it doesn't function like a database would. It functions more like a web app. And as a result, it is extremely horizontally scalable. You can run it anywhere in the world and it's extremely fast and lightweight. And so what we found was the major problem that we are good at solving is when you are a large company that has a globally distributed user base, let's say that's a gaming console, let's say that's a large scale app, like mobile app, you know, whatever that might be, let's say it's streaming media and your users are all over the world. There's lots of ways to get your application and your API globally distributed, but ultimately those things all call back to a centralized database called an origin database. What that does is it creates a physics problem where you're fighting the speed of light to get from, let's say, Buenos Aires or well, Tokyo. Let alone the network hops and congestion and, you know. Exactly. Once you add those in, then it really, you know, you get about 60% of the speed of light. And so that is a major problem. And so what HarperDB can do is you could put it anywhere on planet Earth. It can globally distribute your data locally to where your end users are. And what that means is then I in Denver am interacting with a node of HarperDB that is in Denver at a 5G pop by Verizon or on an AWS instance or in an Equinix data facility. And so that means that me, the end user, as I query an API, that API is actually talking to something nearby and it significantly reduces the speed. For the layman, what that means is if I am logging into an app, that app is going to load faster. That console is going to interact with me faster. And for the company, what it means is that it's going to save them, have a better customer experience and save them a lot of money. 
That's super interesting. I have so many questions. You mentioned that there are tools today that allow you to pretty easily distribute your content, CDNs, I think we're referring to, or distribute globally your API. What do they call those, the service that distributes your API? So like you could use containers and things like Kubernetes, or there's some companies that have productized that like Section.io or EdgeGap or Ori, or, you know, there's a lot of companies in that space that do a good job of making that possible. But you're saying that databases are sort of left behind, at least from the people you talk to. And when I think of a database, I think of a, a big piece of iron sitting somewhere. And I realize these databases have gotten a lot more sophisticated and they can get split up and they can be replicated and duplicated and all kinds of things. But you're absolutely right. I mean, I when I've talked to developers, a database gets to a certain size or a certain global distribution, and you've got to start doing like really horrible things, really unnatural acts to make that work. So the idea that you've built a system that can be, well, it's almost like putting a SQL front end in front of a CDN. <laughs> In a way. Yeah. Um, it, the two ways is important because we're, you know, Redis does a great job of caching your data all over the world, but that's not helpful if you want to read and write that data because that cache becomes stale. Databases have been left behind because people were really focused on things like consistency, meaning like Cockroach, which you mentioned in Oracle, do a really good job of making sure that the data stays consistent everywhere, but then... What that means is that it's hard to horizontally scale that, and you do have to do unnatural things, and sometimes you just end up with a limitation. What we have built is a system where I can write to any node in a cluster. It is ACID compliant, meaning you guarantee that right on that one place. If Let's say that's Denver, let's say that's Tokyo. But then as it gets around the rest of the world, it's eventually consistent. The reason that's important is because you get the guarantee up front, but then that replication happens significantly faster and because you're not worried uh, about the consistency as much. The other thing that we've done is because we're really a web application framework and not a database, the way that that replication happens is at the moment of write, it's natively integrated, and it, we use things like WebSockets, which are more of a web framework and less of something you would think to use in a database. Everything is done over REST APIs, and we're a stateless platform. So there's a lot of more like Web3 paradigms that we used and less sort of focused on the core data problems. I think part of that is because we are really just developers. We're not genius data people, and we didn't get so hung up on solving certain problems. And those tools do a great job of those things. We don't do a great job of those things, but we do solve the problem we solve really well and really fast. This podcast is about edge computing and to an increasing degree, this concept called the open grid, which is, it sort of pays some homage to grid computing, but that's more of scientific computing. But the idea is, okay, so this is very relevant to both of those, I think. It's relevant to edge because edge is a physics problem as much as anything. I mean, it's a, there's a physics part of it, but there's also a data locality, data sovereignty part. I can put HarperDB nodes as far out in the field as I want, as close to my end user or device or sensor or whatever as I want. And I can put as many of them around the world as I want. And so what you're saying is if my, you know, I don't know, my traffic light in Las Vegas stores, I don't know, the, the photo of the car that drove through the light and my identical street light in Barcelona does the same thing. Help me understand the path of that data. So I call HarperDB in both cases, different sides of the world, same database, right? Same company, same database. I want to like eventually like do statistics across all the traffic lights. 
what happens to that data? So I write it in Las Vegas. What happens to it? And I write it in Barcelona. What happens to it? Yeah. And so that is a big differentiator for us as well, is that a lot of people use what's called like a store and forward method or like a hub and spoke model, where ultimately you would store it in Las Vegas and store it in Barcelona. And one thing I should clarify, you wouldn't want to store an image in HarperDB, but the metadata about that image would like um, that you could gather from it. The scan of the license plate and how fast the guy was going. <laughs> yeah. Normally, the paradigm is that gets captured in that edge location. And then it's like in a MongoDB that capture that with Realm. And then they'd send that back to some large cluster in the cloud that's probably running on AWS. And so that's fine for certain use cases. There's a lot of IoT use cases where that works well. There's certain use cases where it's not great. The way that HarperDB is different is it's a mesh network. So there is no centralized you know, mothership. You can set that up with our paradigm if you want to, but natively it is a fully mesh peer-to-peer -peer model. Every node is aware of every other node in the cluster. And as I send it to Las Vegas, the Las Vegas node sends it to Barcelona directly over a persistent WebSocket connection. If they lose state, there is a catch-up routine that a node, when it comes back online, says to all the other nodes, hey, what did I miss? Fill me in. And it sends them to all those nodes in real time. The way that that benefits is that instead of waiting you know, to go up and then back down, all of that happens real time to all of them, and they have that awareness of each other. So that is why it's faster. You can configure where you want your data to live at a schema and table level and decide, I want this set of nodes and you know to have these set of data and this set of nodes have this and this to be globally shared. But ultimately, because we have that globally shared schema and everything is aware of what the schema itself looks like, maybe not where the data resides, you have that flexibility to set it up however you want. And that's where a lot of that performance comes from. If I capture data in Barcelona, but I query the database in Las Vegas, the Barcelona data hasn't gotten to Las Vegas yet. How does that query work? So it queries into the mesh, and then what happens? It depends on the query, and it depends on what you're executing against. So if you query in Las Vegas for the data that's in Barcelona, if it has not yet got there and you are querying the Las Vegas node, it will return null and say, hey, I don't have anything. But it takes less than about 50 milliseconds to replicate that anywhere in the world. And so that is where if you need that guarantee that that data is going to be there, for fintech, for example, that's a really great use case where like, you need to make sure that all the nodes have the same data all the time. Cockroach is the best solution in the world for that. And you're not going to find really anything better than that. But we are also 5,000 times faster than Cockroach because we don't do it that way. Is that a real number, 5,000? Yeah, it, well, it's like 4,900 and change. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so just to clarify, it's not exactly 5,000. It's very close to 5,000. <laughs> I'm rounding up slightly because I'm a founder of a tech startup. But yeah, so that's kind of the paradigm there of how that works. I was going to clarify my question a little bit because, so I understand like querying Las Vegas, the data's not there yet. But I heard you say something else earlier, which is your data's a mesh network. It's not stored in any one place. Does that mean that no one node typically has all the data that actually generally, if you've got a large database spread across the world, that your data is going to be spread across many nodes and to get the whole database, you'd have to go to multiple nodes? Is that? It depends. So you get to choose how you want that set up. So oftentimes people have like a, a cluster of three nodes in a location that will have all, all of the data. Normally what we found is that because HarperDB is extremely performant, on a node level as well as at a cluster level. And this surprised me, I'll be honest. 
is that people tend to do full replicas everywhere. Generally, they replicate mm, their tables it. everywhere, all over, so that each node has the whole database. The reason yeah, okay. that's possible is because, you know, it's not possible for all types of queries. Like if you're going to do a select star from a table that has a trillion rows of data in it, that's not going to work. However, like if you were to do a range hash lookup on that, it will work and it will be fast. So for the types of things that we're doing, it's possible because they're not these super complex snowflake-like analytical queries. They're more like, hey, I need this data. I know what it looks like. I want to get it fast. And then I want to update it fast. That's more the types of use cases we're focused on. You mentioned 100,000 users? In the developer community who are using RPDB, that's correct, yeah. Is it based on an open source project? We have a freemium premium model. So we have a free version of HarperDB that we've distributed free forever. You can spin that up on a Docker container. You can install it via NPM, install HarperDB. Those are people spinning it up all over the world are where those numbers come from. How long has HarperDB been around? We've been around for five and a half years. We were founded in March of 2017. But the team itself, we've worked together through three companies and for over 10 years. I'm guessing that to date, most of the use cases have been the back end to a web service. A hundred percent. Yeah. Do you see uses of it where it's back ending, you know, a sensor network or IOT or, you know, supporting sort of autonomous things that aren't involving like a web browser? We've done a lot of actually IoT projects and telematics for vehicles. We just actually launched a project with a company called Edison Interactive, where we're helping to power golf carts and doing low latency applications with them and Verizon. And so, yes, there's quite a bit of like IoT related stuff. Honestly, that market has been a little bit slower to move than sort of the edge API market. And part of the reason that we have focused more on gaming and streaming media is because those markets are here and now. And like, I kind of break the edge into... You have IoT and then you have the edge. How I would classify those like IoT is more where there is a thing involved that it itself has some form of intelligence. But HarperDB is a great fit for that. And we've done a lot of work mining as well, like monitoring electrical relays and high frequency sensors. Part of the reason it's a good fit in that area is because a lot of databases are optimized for read or write, whereas HarperDB, you can definitely scale more on the read side, but you can still scale pretty massively on the write side. So you do about 20,000 writes a second on a single node. And so in a lot of IoT use cases, they're very write intensive because the sensors put off huge amounts of data. And so we found we're a good fit there. We're also about 150 megabytes and can run on anything from a Raspberry Pi up to a massive bare metal machine. So there's a lot of flexibility in that. The feature set that you were mentioning where you can pick individual schema or tables to be, you can pick the distribution pattern, essentially. Do you see that technique or that technology or some variation of it being used in the future to sort of tier your data? And what I mean by that is one of the challenges in Edge, especially with sensors, is you got some sensor that's generating, let's say, a trillion data points every seven days. And you may want to have all that data local for some period of time where you can act on it fast, where you don't have to pay to send it anywhere, right? But you might want some subset of that data stored you know, globally or, or in other locations. How do you view those sorts of problems through the lens of HarperDB? Yeah, we've actually been doing projects like that for years. And so it's super easy with HarperDB. It solves that problem out of the box with no customization. So it's pretty easy. Typically, what we recommend to folks is you have a data table or a raw sensor table. You send everything from that sensor into that table. 
And you can write what's called custom functions in HerperDB. So these are your own Node.js applications that can be APIs, that can be ML, that can be anything you want. And so you can put some logic in there that says, hey, I noticed in the data table this thing happened. I'd like this, you know, from this time to this time. Let's grab that set locally on this node and then write that to a different table called the event table. And that data table may reside, you can set that up so it only resides locally in the field on the device and the event table can then be replicated up to wherever you want it to go. We also have a feature called time to live, which was built exactly for this use case you're describing. And so you can set that. So it'll wipe out a table after a certain amount of time because it's a lot <laughs> of empty, time, empty your waste basket every 30 days, <laughs> like my Google drive. Every, does. Yeah. You can set it to one, you know, every 10 milliseconds or every 10 days or whatever you want that to be, because you're right. Like you might get, 7 million rows of data in a day. And the challenge in industrial IoT is that I don't need that until I need it. But when I need it, I need every single one of those data points so that I can have the best fidelity of my data possible. And so we built a lot of those features natively in HarperDB and it, it works really well. HarperDB, at least the free product, is something that I have to install and if I want to distribute my database globally, I have to have the machines. Either I have to lease them from somebody like Amazon or some bare metal company, or I have to pay to have them installed and co-located myself. But I also understand you have a cloud offering. Is that available now? We have a cloud offering, and there is a free version of the cloud offering. So you can, oh, spin, up, okay. uh, you can spin up a free tier on that as well. This is embarrassing, but I don't know if that's limited to a certain number of nodes. I know that, I know that it's limited to the amount of RAM there's some limitation that if people with serious production workloads would need to move up to pay. So tell me about the cloud product. How widely distributed are you globally? Like what's what's your thought and growth plan for the cloud product? Yeah, we have done a bad job of investing in that service. We're going to spend the next 18 to 24 months really growing that. So to date, it really only runs on Amazon in the United States, as well as Verizon Mech. And so you can deploy it on Verizon Mac or you can deploy it on Amazon. The product itself, which is the same thing running on the cloud or running on a device or you run it wherever, it's in a really good place. We have some stuff we'd like to add, but, you know, we feel like it's in a good place. And so we're going to spend the next two years investing extremely heavily in the service because we are partnered with companies like Equinix, Google, Amazon. And so we want to make it so that you can really deploy that anywhere on planet Earth on your own from the studio. You go to studio.harperdb.io, click a button and deploy it in thousands of nodes. We do also have partners that can help you do that today if you want to, but we'd like to build that directly into the studio. And, and that's currently what we're working on. And we, the cool thing about HarperDB, unlike a lot of databases, is that it is container native. So it just very easily runs in a container. And so getting it deployed globally is a pretty easy proposition. I was just thinking about it visually about, you know, putting all these nodes somewhere. And I thought back to what we were talking about just a few minutes ago, which is you could have a version of the database and the subset of the data running on the device. I actually don't know of any and certainly not, not, it's not common of a single database that spans the infrastructure and the device. That's a really interesting model because I would think if I'm the developer who has to write code on the sensor and I have to figure out how to get that back up to the guys that are doing the analysis, if I have HarperDB, I just have to write to the database. And as soon as someone's configured it correctly, 
that data will eventually get to where it needs to go. That's really interesting. As a device developer, that'd be great. Yeah, we thought it would be something that people would like. And uh, to be honest, a lot of people have written stuff. Uh, we haven't made a lot of money there, but we do feel like we've built the features to make IoT developers' lives a lot easier. So you you can literally install it on a Raspberry Pi, hook it up to a sensor. You can actually write your application code in HarperDB2 to consume directly from that sensor. We have a Node-RED module for folks who just want to connect it via Node-RED to the sensor. And then you just call local host to HarperDB. And so that saves you a bunch of money. It saves a lot of problems. And then it's pretty easy to configure that node of HarperDB to another node or a larger server, and it'll replicate and handle all of that for you. So really what we're trying to do is we want you to do the stuff that's fun for you and that you are good at and like let us solve those other problems. And so we've built as much of that into the platform as possible. And I will say back to your point, we are in an unusual position where if you look at ExtremeDB, for example, is a really lightweight, small database that you can install on anything. And it's great, but it's not something you would want to run as a, you know, a massive cloud service. And it's lighter weight than HarperDB. And then you have, you know, a Snowflake, but imagine trying to solve Snowflake on a Raspberry Pi, that's not going to happen. And so we've done a really good job of threading this needle in between those two things. We're not going to be everything all in between, but our goal is kind of the orchestration layer of that, the movement of that, and the development side of it. So I tend to think of the internet not just as an abstraction, but as geospatially, right? Same way, because there really is physics involved. Like, like the data is bits, but it, it exists somewhere physically, right? That's, and people don't really really see that. And so what's, what's interesting is it's almost like you've recognized that and you've built an abstraction layer. We have GeoJSON and HarperDB, so uh, if you ever want to play with it, you can do geospatial querying in HarperDB also. Uh, you might find that fun. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. You know, when I really roll forward into the future and I think about, okay, well, how are all these things going to work? I imagine a significant portion of how the things will interact with the internet, let's say, uh, or the cloud, uh, will be through a digital twin. And so there needs to be some way to bring in massive amounts of data, represent it in some database, and then you know represent it to a model, like an AI model that can then reason against the digital twin. Do you see HarperDB operating in that world? We did a bunch of digital twin projects early on. We actually started in IoT. So when we launched the company, we were exclusively focused on IoT. Almost everything we did was in that space. And then we sort of moved to the edge market just because, you know, we have to make money. We're a company. That said, like I think HarperDB is a phenomenal platform for digital twin. We actually thought that would be our strongest use case. I think, you know, because of some of the stuff you and I were already talking about, to do digital twin properly, if you look at an airplane, if you look at a car, if you look at a manufacturing facility, the fidelity of data you need is insane because otherwise you don't have an accurate digital twin. You know, you need temperature readings, you need velocity, you need all these things. And so the volume of that, and then we've tried to build in things like geospatial querying. Um, we've built enough things that you can do all that. You can do TensorFlow for machine learning directly in HarperDB to make that possible. Some of the challenges I see that we are not good at solving and that I think are going to be super industry specific or super, you know, thing specific, like an airplane is a really complex thing and trying to implement a digital twin takes a lot of specialized knowledge and a lot of rails that you need to be on. And so we can be a, a good building block for that, but not a, like a full solution for that, if that makes sense. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting about HarperDB, you, know, you talk about running these workloads, these Node.js workloads. Like, so to some extent, as you're building out your cloud product, you're, you're building out a 
cloud product that does compute also. So you may be in the awkward position eventually. I mean, it's a high quality problem, right? Where you're competing with your <laughs> with your partners because you're offering. But as I realize, it's a very specialized workload. But that is a that is kind of a really Again, it's a little bit of a mind shift, whereas when people talk about edge computing, one of the things that you talk about is like, well, don't move it, you know, a petabyte of data to the workload, <laughs> move the 500 gigabytes of data, you know, of the workload to the data. And you've sort of operationalized that in a way. When I say run this workload, how do I tell it where to go? So if you go to studio.harperdb.io, you can see your entire cluster of all of your nodes. You write your Node.js code. There's two ways to do it. You can go into our studio, click a button and say, I want this on this set of nodes. I want this on this set of nodes. Or you can just use GitHub Actions and the sort of GitHub workflow and deploy using that directly into the nodes themselves. It's essentially just a Fastify server that runs natively inside of HarperDB that has access to HarperDB's core operations without any hops. One of the problems we were trying to solve was simplicity and extension of HarperDB and also giving developers, like, we want to collapse the stack so they have less components they have to worry about. But the other piece of it is, if you think about, like, Lambda and serverless functions, those are great and they're awesome. But even when they're running in a hyperscaler cloud like Google or Amazon, the Lambda may be running on one VM and DynamoDB is running on a different one. And the problem with that is you have hops and that creates latency. And so by putting them inside of HarperDB, our core operations respond in nanoseconds, which means that you, you can do things really fast. That is really interesting. Yeah, so let's let's talk about hops and networking. To some extent, your customers and you, to the degree that you grow your cloud product, are running a global network of nodes. Right. So you mentioned the connection between the nodes is, is an open web socket. Are you doing anything or have you thought about the intervening routes? Right. Because how it gets from Barcelona to Las Vegas, there's a, at least a dozen choices. Well, there's an infinite number of choices, but there's at least a dozen good choices. How do you think about that in the context of HarperDB? Yeah. So what, what I will say is we are currently using WebSockets. Um, we are rolling out a new technology in our 4.0 release that will not be on WebSockets. That is on uh, something new that I'm, I can't yet speak about, and I apologize. It's more advanced, and it is true mesh instead of Whereas WebSockets sort of create peer-to-peer, this is a true mesh network. So part of that challenge is solved there in that the nodes in between Barcelona and Las Vegas have intelligence and can sort of assist in that with the true mesh. I will also say we're not a network provider, right? So we're partnered with Google, we're partnered with Amazon, we're partnered with Verizon, we're partnering with more and more telco providers, Lumen as well. Like we know what we can and can't do. And my background is not networking and is in development. And I am not going to solve the internet. I can do one very small piece to help, but we work closely with those folks. And like, you know, Akamai has been phenomenal in helping us optimize things around that. And that is stuff we feel is done better by other folks and that we rely on their expertise because like otherwise we'd be boiling the ocean and way out, off, outside our skis. Let's talk about IoT, right? So you mentioned you seem to have a very informed view of IoT. You said the company started there. Just walk me through what you thought the original use case was going to be, where you think it went, and if you see it reappearing. It's going to reappear. I thought that it would be digital twin. I thought that that would be a big part of it. I thought that real-time eventing would be a big part of what we would do. So we did a lot of projects 
whether that was, you know, we spent a lot of time in Rock Springs, Wyoming, going to oil and gas and mining sites there, helping them to do real-time power metering. You have these electrical relays, which are putting off, you know, 20,000, 40,000 data points a second. When something goes wrong, it costs them millions of dollars. So predictive maintenance, preventative maintenance, things like that, smart manufacturing. We did projects in sort of transportation where HarperDB was running on fleets of vehicles and sort of doing things like predicting whether a driver was falling asleep or intoxicated or going off route or things of that nature in real time. And so those were the use cases that we were kind of focused on. Ironically, we're starting to see them come back now with companies like Verizon making the investment in the 5G mech and making it more of a possibility because the IoT hardware really never materialized. And so that was kind of what we saw as the problem was that the solutions were all there. Lots of people built amazing things in IoT, but we could never find a partner where we could say, hey, do you have a product that we could put on a truck that makes it easy to get our product onto that truck, to update our product, to connect to the internet that is also waterproof and the battery's not going to run out and that like it's not going to catch on fire and it's not going to melt. And the last thing in the world I want to do is be a hardware company. Um, the only thing I want to do less than that is probably like go work in healthcare. But so that was where we saw it sort of fall apart. But now as IoT and the edge are converging, which is just starting to happen, I feel like in a real way, that is where I think it's going to take off. And all those things will be real. And the IoT's original thought that, hey, we're going to put this stuff on these vehicles or we're going to put them in a vineyard or we're going to put them down a mine shaft. I feel like that was a little over ambitious for where hardware is today. And I think the use cases where you can take advantage of the private 5G networks and take advantage of the near edge, I think those will come to life in, in the very near future. And I'm starting to see them come to life today, which is cool. When you say the, the near edge, what do you mean by that? I mean pops, so like telco pops, like little micro data centers. I mean... So on the infrastructure side of the network, not on the device side. We have seen some projects, we're working on two actually, where they're taking this these same basically AWS outposts like you know a, a data center in a box, if you will, <laughs> and putting them on customer sites and creating sort of a private extension of the cloud that becomes that edge. And those do become real, but we have not yet, and maybe this is because we've been focused on other things and I'm just not smart about it anymore. I haven't yet seen the real IoT project where like you put compute devices on a bunch of trucks and that creates the cloud, uh, like, a, you know, its own cloud. An ad hoc vehicle network or something like that. Yeah, those are farther off. One way that I've come to think about it is you've got the infrastructure moving out farther to the edge and you have the stuff that's on the edge wanting to meet. They want to meet, right? You want the compute, right. the compute data are all trying to meet. Yeah. And, and it seems like the, the logical meeting place is literally at the edge of the access network. So at the cell tower yeah. or, you know, the fiber intersection point or, or something like that. If you think about it, w within a, a local market within 100 miles, 50 miles, let's say, within 50 miles, the difference between a server running in a mech environment or in a microdata center, it's the same as it being on-premises from a performance standpoint. Agreed. Yeah. And that and that's exactly what I think is those use cases where that works. So you start getting the scale, you start yeah. getting, yeah, you start getting some of the economies of cloud delivered right to the edge where you're able to provide the same services that I'd have to go buy stuff and put it on my premises, which is the last thing I want. So we're, we're, you see us entering that world. We're there. So you can go to studio.harperdb.io today. 
you can log in, you can click a button and deploy to 19 different locations in the US market where on Verizon's 5G network. And then you can write, you can build your database in HarborDB, write the code and connect your thing to it. We just took, a, as I mentioned, Edison Interactive, their golf carts are talking to 19 different Verizon pops throughout the United States over the Verizon network, hitting our API. Can you walk us through that use case in detail? That's a super interesting use case. Yeah, absolutely. So Edison Interactive is, um, they have a, a many different products, but their primary one is something called the Shark Experience. It's a tablet that runs in a golf cart and you can order food on it. You can do, you know, your yardage. You can, you know, listen to radio. You can do all these things, but there's many different APIs behind that. And they run on over 30,000 golf carts. The problem is that those golf carts are then making, you know, 20, 30, 40 API calls every time the screen loads all the way back to one of the hyperscalers clouds and the database. And that introduced up to five second latency. That five seconds of latency, what were the big bottlenecks? What were the, the things in that chain that contributed the most to that budget? Some of it was code. Um, some of it was, you know, 3G, 4G, uh, like, network. You also have to keep in mind it's a golf cart, so it's not like it's in your house. It's on an LTE or something, and it could be a yeah, it could be behind a tree. And exactly. It could be anywhere. And then a lot of that was going, you know, if you're near where those APIs originated, let's say that's in the west coast of the United States, it's a lot faster. I'm in a golf cart in Seattle. Yeah, then you're, then you're great. Uh, if you're in a golf cart in the panhandle of Florida, that's not quite as ideal. You know a lot more about the network than I do, but that's a lot of different hops to get there, and there's a lot of distance. Yeah, and if Verizon has a, a mech down there that you can drop a HarperDB node on and push the data and some of the, the backend code to it, yeah, you're golden. Right. And so we moved, not some of, we moved the entire backend of the application to HarperDB Custom Functions, the entire database. So it runs in a fully distributed paradigm now. And so that when you were in Florida, you were hitting a mech in Florida. And when you were in Dallas, you were hitting a mech in Dallas. And when you were in Reno, you're hitting a mech in Las Vegas. And so that is how that application works now. And we reduce- Now are all these, all these little native services talking to each other through the database? Yes. That's really interesting because you know you look at the world that let's just blame it on Kubernetes. It's not entirely Kubernetes fault. If you look at the, the world that Kubernetes has created with these multi-tiered service-based applications and the need to route messages through a service mesh or some equivalent to, you know, and and it's a pretty complicated tree. It's really interesting. It's like, you know, maybe it was on purpose, maybe it was on accident, maybe a bit of both, but you've built a distributed cloud in every sense of the word. And it's simpler. So where's the limitation? So if, so if I was to choose between <laughs> doing what you did, which is refactoring an entire set of backend applications that were written in what, like Ruby or PHP or something, a bunch of backend applications into Node.js, Harper DB functions versus replatforming on Kubernetes, how do you make that decision? One, if latency is not a problem for you, then, you know, it may not be as interesting, but as soon as you start to be this globally, you want to deploy in lots of places, then it does become sort of problematic. HarperDB is not Snowflake. So to be clear about that, like I mentioned, you're not going to do these massive, analytical, complex, hugely expensive queries, but for your operational data things like that power your API, that power, you know, the, your application interaction, the power integration, it's a great fit for that. The other thing which I did mention previously is if you need 
very strong consistency, we're not a great fit for that. So for example, like let's take fintech and a banking right. transaction. <laughs> if you if you the money really the ledger, should leave the account you, everywhere. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because <laughs> uh, that, that could be a problem if yeah. you update, you know, Las Vegas and say, you'll hey, this eventually guy get paid. Me. We think. Yeah, yeah. Or he takes the money out twice, uh, right. which is uh, not a great <laughs> even <thing>. worse. <laughs> yeah. Um, so like. Those are not great use cases, but we are trying to solve as many of them as we can. And when you mention Heroku, that's not a small thing to us. Like, we we loved Heroku. We kind of were, like, think of it as what Heroku kind of wanted to be, but imagine that on the edge and then with some other things in there as well. It's kind of, that's what we are trying to build ultimately in in a lot of ways. I mean, in a way, there is a lot of similarity between the way that Ruby... Ruby on Rails ran on Heroku and the the tie-in to the Postgres database as a service that they built. It's a different approach to it, but it's very similar functionality. That's really that's really interesting. Earlier you mentioned that Harper DB is used a lot in gaming. What's the use case there? How does that work? If you think about gaming, gaming has a lot of social APIs. It has a lot of distributed users, people all over the world. There's a lot of data that moves around, and latency is a major problem there. Because if I log into my game console and I just want to do something as basic as set my presence from offline to online, or I want to see like what my purchases are or things like that, um, that you're talking hundreds of millions of people. You're talking about all over the world and massive data sets. And so very similar to the Edison golf cart case, we've replatformed a lot of those APIs on HarperDB, distributed the origin of those. A lot of times we don't replace the origin, we just explode off of it. Because one of the things we can do is integrate into a DynamoDB, integrate into a Firebase, and then make those APIs run faster. So a very simple one, and one of the first ones we ever did was just you log in in Buenos Aires, you're offline to online, and that sets your presence online everywhere in the world in 100 milliseconds, whereas in some cases that took up to a second to do that globally. And if you're playing with a friend, that's not a great experience that it takes him that long to, to be aware of things like that. It's like so, using Slack. Yeah. Well, and so the reason we used Socket cluster and socket. Well, we started with socket IO is because Slack used socket IO. So the crazy thing is, under the hood, yes, we're a database, but we actually copied a lot of what Slack did. Slack and Twitter and other things like that are are sort of like the quintessential use case in some ways, right? You just want to write the event, the tweet, into some database and have it figure out all the other places it has to be to make sense. That's really interesting. We talked about this, you know, IoT's day is eventually going to happen and digital twins are eventually going to happen. We're starting to see some of it now. Like, I mean, two years ago, you couldn't have deployed HarperDB on 15 edge nodes that Verizon runs in a coordinated fashion. Like, that's just a new thing. And pretty soon it's going to be 15,000, right? I mean, mean, there's an obvious progression there. When you look at the landscape of the world and all the moving parts, if you could sort of, you know, there's a bunch of dominoes that need to topple to get to where the sensors are connected to the internet, the data is being collected, it's being analyzed. On, like That's just part of our routine. If you could push any one of those dominoes, what's the thing that you think would accelerate us into this future world the fastest, That if you could just nudge it? Never in a podcast have I given an answer that I thought should be edited, and I almost just did there. I mean, people is the thing, honestly. And I, I, will, I will say the answer because I'm, I'm, I'm a blunt person. Do it. it. It's the people that work at the companies, right? Like, it's not... So now that we Verizon and others and Vodafone and you know Google and Amazon have invested in this mech stuff and Google's 
rolling out an awesome stuff there and Amazon yeah. has great stuff there. Like it's there now. And like you said, for m- the vast majority of use cases, if you're within a hundred miles of a pop, like you kind of have what you need. The bureaucracy, the speed at which people move, their ability to think about how things work. That is now the one that I think is the biggest challenge is that this stuff is now and it's here. And if you really wanted to do it, you could, but I, I think it's, also just changing how people think about stuff. So like willingness to adopt new technologies, willingness to adopt new architectural paradigms, not trying to bring sort of the same cloud centralized sort of cloud model that you implemented to the edge. Cause it's not going to work because it doesn't scale, you know, it's scaled to four geos. It's not going to scale to 40,000 places. Like you just said. Um, I, I think that's it. I, I would also say, the Kubernetes piece of it, the services around that are good, but there is work to do. Um, one of the challenges we run into constantly is the ability to have persistent storage in lots of places with Kubernetes. Those two things being married is a problem for us. Aren't you persistent storage? We are, but if you deploy us in a container, they're ephemeral by nature, and we have to do a lot of work to mount that container to persistent storage, meaning I mean the actual physical yeah, storage, I, because what normally when you spin down a Kubernetes you container, data, yeah. you lose the data, which is not ideal for our DB. And so the, those are some of the things. I, I'm sorry, I give you way more than you asked for. But, yeah, so, uh, I, so, I, more, so I heard a lot of really good answers, but it sounded like the one, the one that you you were a little hesitant to say because it involves like human beings, which is I, I call it cultural inertia. Yes, but it's changing. I think people are starting to see it change now. But it's been a lot of blood, sweat, and tears for people on the front. It is. But when you look at, like, the history of adoption, I mean, like, the iPhone is the exception, right? Everybody just got an iPhone in a week. But, like, like ATM cards, it took 20 years to get half the U.S. population getting money from the ATM. Because we, all those old people had to go in to see the teller had to, had to stop withdrawing funds. But, yeah, so, so things can take quite a bit of time. But, I, like you, I'm starting to see some of this uh, materialized pretty pretty meaningful. Hey, Stephen, thanks for joining us on this podcast. Really appreciate your insight. Very interesting arc to your product history. I do hope that the IoT business picks back up for you because I think that's a really interesting angle for you. If people want to want to find you and your company online, where should they go? Our website's a great place to go. We do have a community Slack and almost our whole team is in there and highly available. So that's a great place to find us. And you know, we're pretty active on social media, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera. So a- anywhere, but I... I really encourage people to jump in our Slack because like our, my co-founder, Kyle, the CTO is in there answering questions and most of our senior engineers and it's a good place to find us. That's awesome. Thanks, Dean. Awesome. Thank you so much. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and a review and tell a friend. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of our partners at Dell Technologies. Simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting dell.com.